Welcome to the John Chapman Show, where we talk about the path of a wealthy millennial, uncovering the truth about building and protecting your nest egg. Join us on this journey as we hear the stories of millennials and mentors alike to help you plan, manage, and protect your wealth. John is an employee of WorthPoint LLC. All opinions expressed by John and podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of WorthPoint. This podcast should not be relied upon for investment decisions and is for informational purposes only. Hey everyone, John Chapman. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Today we're joined by none other than Christopher Van Slyke for a special episode in response to the coronavirus. Last week was the worst trading week since 2008. And for a millennial like myself, uh, I was still in college back in 2008. So sure, I've read about it and I've studied it as a uh, student of the market, but never really lived it. So we're going to get some perspective today from Christopher, who has seen this and done this for decades, and just talk about the implications. <laughs> Only two decades. Only two problem. decades. Two decades. Okay, we don't want to overdo it. Um, so yeah, Christopher, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, thank, thank you for having me, John. I look forward to talking about this topic. And yes, it is kind of interesting generationally that you are a millennial and I am a Gen Xer. And I, I lived through uh, the dot-com situation around 2000 and 08. So I probably have a different perspective on this than you do, although I think we're going to be coming to the same conclusion. Yeah, most definitely. Well, you can't miss any headlines. Every, every single headline is regards to coronavirus. It's, it's the stock market. And so I think one thing that would be helpful is to uh, first just take a step back and consider some of the financial planning ramifications, understand how this fits into other market corrections, and, um, and then also just understand that uh, you know, this doesn't mean the end of the world and uh, how we can respond or even maybe not respond to something like this. So this podcast, I'm hoping to, to title it Fear Porn and you know, kind of uh, put a little perspective on this whole coronavirus situation because I think that's what's got people most agitated. Although I think that given the 10-year bull run that we've uh, benefited from in the last 10 years. I think people are generally a little nervous and I think this is just kind of a, a little pinprick and they're afraid that this is going to pop the bubble and ruin their financial lives. So, you know, I, I found having been through 2008 when you had the, the, the global banking crisis and and the dot-com crisis and I even remember the uh, they called, I think, a Black Friday in, in 1987. I'm old enough to remember that. Um, that having a perspective on this kind of short-term fear and panic uh, is really important in getting you through the situation. So while I'm sure that people are concerned about the, the more advanced planning and the real financial planning that goes on, I think people are probably focused right now on this coronavirus scare. And yeah, does that definitely. present a problem you know, for their long-term financial plan? So yeah. I think one question that can come up too is people commenting on the speed at which the market went down four or five trading days and it's down 10 plus percent. So, uh, you know, do, do, so do let's the, talk about, let's talk about, um, the speed of trading. Let's talk about program trading and the yeah, internet yeah. and how quickly people can respond to information. So to me, it's not, you know, I'll also say that markets can uh, go up really fast too. Yeah. So uh, I, that just to me sounds like a, 
uh, it's consistent with the shortening of the information cycle and the technology cycle in the world in which we live now. So I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. And in some ways, this actually, we, we, we can change our reference point instead of saying, yes, um, you know, the computers impact trading, which of course they do. Uh, the markets respond to any and all information and they're constantly adjusting prices. If anything, it's the most one of the most efficient machines out there and uh, information may have moved slowly in the past. So just because uh, the market can change quickly doesn't necessarily mean that something's broken. Uh, because it's it's responding to information which it always has and it it always should. Well, it means it's doing a better job of incorporating information into price, and it's that mechanism, it's that crowdsourcing mechanism, the greatest crowdsourcing mechanism known to man, that has built all this wealth in the first place, and that's that's ultimately what we trust to uh, help manage our capital for us. So let's talk about where this stands in the context of other market corrections. Um, you've, you've had some offline, we were talking about some, uh, you know, corrections of the past um, that may be much more daunting than this. Um, well, let's, I love, uh, I'm a fan of, uh, of Jeremy, Jeremy Siegel, Jeremy who Siegel. wrote, are you familiar with him? Yeah. He, if you haven't read his book or heard him speak, you should. I first heard him uh, probably 25 years ago. He wrote uh, Stocks for the Long Run. He's a, a Horton uh, finance professor. And he once trotted out the return on the stock market since 1802. Wow. And I know. And I happen that to makes be me think, are there even what, what does stock trading look like in 1802? <laughs> I imagine. That, I don't, well, I bet. I bet that information didn't get into prices as quickly as they yeah, do now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. But, but I do know that uh, markets were surprisingly efficient back then. Anyway, when you I just want to kind of go over maybe the history. So $1 grew to $669,500 after inflation um, from 1802 to 2012. That's, that's what this data looks like here. Say that um, amount again. $1. Okay. $1 grew to $669,000 from 1802 to 2012 after inflation. That is wow. net of inflation. Wow. That's hard okay. to wrap my mind around. It is. So, so what I like to do is, is talk about some of the things that happened over that relatively short 200-year period. And I like to start with the American Civil War. So while... The coronavirus sounds pretty scary, and it is. Uh, compared to the Civil War, I don't think it's really kind of on that scale. And when I say that money grew at this rate, it grew 6.6% after inflation over this period. And this includes things like the Civil War, oh, World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, the murder of the U.S. president, the OPEC oil embargo, the dot-com bust, the 08 financial meltdown. Yet somehow, stocks managed to average around 10% total and about 6.6% after inflation over this period. So I think when you kind of look backwards through time, you realize that there isn't much risk that markets don't know about. And when you put it in that kind of perspective, maybe the coronavirus doesn't seem quite as scary. So from, a, from an investment perspective, now I'm not a, I'm not a health professional, 
So I have, of course, this, this could be uh, a problem uh, for the way we live. It could be a small problem for, for uh, corporate earnings. Although, you know, the market, it didn't go to zero. So clearly there are future earnings out there for human beings. So I just like to think about the, the perspective of the long-term return of markets and all the things much worse than the coronavirus that markets have found a way to overcome. And that, that makes me think of just to, to play another side of asking the question, even though I, I, I probably shouldn't, is this time any different? Yeah, we had these things there and you know, our market- Different than the Civil War? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it's better than the civil war. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. That's good. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, obviously, uh, it is different because the future is, is not knowable. Um, I haven't heard anybody, I've been following the story of the coronavirus for a while. I haven't heard anybody say that the uh, aggregate death rate was greater than 2% of those who get the virus. And w- you know, even if you look at that and tried to apply a number like that worldwide, that would be nothing like the world wars. That would be nothing like the civil war in terms of the kind of mayhem it's creating. Uh, it would be nothing like the Spanish flu, which I understand had a death rate of something like 30% of those who got it. So I don't, I, I think that, uh, you know, th- there are news organizations that, are in the business of getting eyeballs glued to their stories. And uh, there's a lot, there's a big kerfuffle about this, but I don't, I don't think that uh, considering that people who hold equities like our clients uh, plan to use them uh, to live off of for the rest of their lives, which will be decades for most folks. uh, I I don't think this is a big deal. Yeah, that's it's uh, refreshing to hear that take because in the heat of the moment, it can feel so scary, almost to the point where maybe I've I had some folks communicate that they just felt like they didn't quite know what to do. They almost felt a sense of per, per, like feeling paralyzed because there's just such an elevated amount of fear of seeing it go down so much so quickly. Yeah, and if, and and you turn on the news, and what do you see? You know, people in masks and. Um, you know, red numbers on all the uh, the indices and so forth. So there's definitely a little panic going on. I will say that even with the decline, uh, we're kind of we're at about the same place the market was in October of last year, September October of last year. So it's not like you know if you've been investing for you know a couple of decades, it's not like you're suffering losses. This is just a reduction of. Oh, 10 to 13% off of an extremely high, high, right? Almost 30,000 on the Dow. Yeah, um, that's right. Recently. So remember that, put that in perspective. Uh, you're looking at the loss. Absolutely. That's one thing, but look at the loss relative to your gains. And most people are still sitting on massive gains. It makes me think too, just how long somebody has to, let's say they're, they're feeling down in the dumps after the market corrected so sharply last week and with, we don't know what the future is going to hold. And so some people may experience a feeling of frustration, not knowing how long it'll be until the market comes back to the most previous high and feeling like uh, they're anchored to whatever the dollar amount was b- before the correction happened. And, that, and that'll be tough. And one thing we don't know is the short-term uh, 
performance potential of the market. What we do know about markets is that over long periods of time, decades and decades, like a human lifespan, they are very good at delivering very consistent returns of around 10% per year. And so there can be two-year periods of losses, five-year periods of losses. There are even 10-year periods where they don't do as well as some other investments. But over longer periods, like the human lifespan, equities are extremely good at delivering good long-term returns, which help people get to the point in life where they can live off their money. How does somebody think about, um, you mean you brought up just not using this money right away. So in some ways I'm thinking that it's a, it's an all or nothing, you know, I've got a million dollars in an account and if I need to start spending this money, I don't want, you know, any of it to go down, but you bring up a, a nuance to this that, um, you know, some of this money you're actually not going to touch for decades off into the future. How do you think about that? Well, the majority of it, I mean, what I think what most of our clients who are retired are doing is using three or four or 5% of the amount of money they have to live off of each year and increasing that for inflation. Most people aren't even at retirement. So they're using zero as a percentage of the money now, and they don't need it for a few decades. So if it goes down uh, in the short term, it really doesn't matter. Right. You never need all, if you have a million dollars, let's say, you're never going to need a million dollars on a day, right? The most you'll ever need is maybe uh, 30 to 50,000 in a year if, if you plan to live off of the money. And most people are not currently withdrawing that amount of money. So it doesn't really matter if it goes down next month or next year. What really matters is whether it grows in the long run to enough money so that when you're peeling off some of its uh, it's capital and cash to live on that it's a, it's a high enough amount of money, but the short term movement really doesn't affect most people. And, and if you needed a million dollars tomorrow, you wouldn't have invested in the stock market. It'd probably be in the bank. Yeah. Is there any use in trying to cherry pick countries here? Because this hasn't just impacted the U.S. It's impacted Europe. It's impacted parts of Asia. So if I'm a U.S. based investor, should, and you know, I'm, I'm I really feel most comfortable with U.S. companies. Uh, do I need to just be focusing my investments and in stocks only on you know the big companies that I'm really familiar with? No, I, I would not do that. I think you give up some of the benefits of, of diversification in doing that. You know, the, the last oh, 200 years have been uh, American centuries, but I don't know that they will be in the future. I always like to give the example of the Japanese stock market. When I started my career in the 80s, the Japanese stock market had just gone bananas. And as of a few years ago, it basically didn't grow for two and a half decades. So Japanese citizens who only invested in Japanese companies that they felt safe with ended up not having very good retirements because they, they ignored the opportunities worldwide. So I, I, I would not advise people to invest only in big, safe U.S. companies. It may, the next century may not be the U.S. century. Another thing that makes me think of is just um, people tempted to market time 
Uh, they're in the market when it's good. If there are signs that it starts to get hectic or scary, they trade out like after a week, like last week. So I guess for people that are feeling they're tempted to react, they're wanting to protect a little bit of this and maybe just, you know, quote unquote, wait until things cool off. Uh, what's your experience been with that? I know that we can look at uh, professionals who are, purport to be able to do this and there are no professionals who seem to be able to get this right, right? Because you got to know when, when to get out and when to get back in. So it's two very unlikely decisions. And in fact, when we compare professional market timers to simply being diversified and holding your investments for long periods of time, uh, the buy and hold strategy beats nearly all of the professionals. So I don't recommend that individuals try to do that uh, because you can also really change the odds against you and you can badly underperform the market. I think you mentioned a statistic earlier about missing the five best days over a period lowers your return, you know, like by half, something yeah. like that. Yeah. If missing in the past 40 years, missing the past 15 days reduces your performance almost by 50%. I mean, so that'd be a, a dollar invested 40 years from now grows to $5,000. Uh, if you miss the best uh, 15 best days, just one five. So, you know, two weeks or so. And then uh, if you're invested that entire time, it gro- otherwise, if you, if you don't trade in and out of the market and you just stay fully invested, it grows to almost uh, 13 and a half thousand. Yeah. So I, I'm a professional. I, I don't do that. I've never seen any evidence that anybody could do that successfully. Uh, it seems that ignoring short-term fear porn and ignoring panics uh, and not getting greedy by concentrating your portfolio on big bets uh, seems to be the winning strategy. Uh, when you look at, say, the last 200 years, certainly the last 100 years, we have really good data going back to 1926. But that doesn't sound that doesn't sound sexy or exciting. I want you to be able to tell me exactly when I can trade out and exactly when I could get in, and then I want to use the leverage in my portfolio, and I want to be I want to be fancy about it, man. Boy, I wish I could do all that stuff. I would be I would be so amazingly wealthy if I could just do all that stuff. But if you look at the people who are really wealthy in the world, it's it's people like uh, Bill Gates who figured out how to solve a human problem and literally expanded the global economy it's not traders yeah unfortunately that's <laughs> no. a lose that's a loser's game yeah that is it doesn't work yeah uh what else can people then think about so if for those who are listening that they're feeling a sense of ease a sense of calm this has been put into perspective they understand kind of more of a long-term trajectory what are some parting things that they can spend their time uh working on and and improving their situation Oh, I think it's much uh, better use of people's time to examine whether they're still on track to achieve their goals, whether they have the right of money set aside and whether they're saving the right amount of money. Um, Yeah, heck, some people have too much money, more than they need. And are they looking at creative ways to benefit uh, either causes that matter to them or or family? Uh, have, Have they updated their will and estate plan to reflect their current situation? 
Um, is there any tax planning they can be doing to lower the amount that they pay the government every year? For a lot of people, changes in tax laws and their personal tax situation leave some opportunities there to do some some tax planning. Um, are they fully protected? Are they open to some risks in life? Uh, perhaps legal risks, that is the risk of being sued, uh, or um, you know, the risk that some accidents happen somewhere on some asset that you own that, that could present a problem? Do they have trustees in place that can help make sure that as they get older that their, their, their things and their estate and their assets are taken care of in a way that's the most respo responsible for them? Uh, is their estate created in a way that's going to give their loved ones and descendants the best chance for success? I think that's a much better way to spend your time than worrying about the coronavirus. Yeah. I'm not saying don't pay attention. I know it's in the news, but just <laughs> I, you know, my advice is is to have some perspective and to think about. We tend to be very short term focused. Yeah. Uh, what's going on today? But it, it's it's very useful um, to kind of look at a, a chart of the long term history of the market and just go through mentally all the things that happened over those periods and things that markets and people found a way to overcome. Yeah. Really helpful. That sounds like there's a lot actually that people can be thinking about so much greater and that might have a, a, a potentially bigger impact. Things like uh, whether or not they're protected for a lawsuit if they're a business owner or thinking about what the, their tax situation is or if their, their loved ones are set up for success after they pass away. So that's uh, that, that excites me. I appreciate you bringing all that up. Well, and one thing to consider also is, you know, in your investments, do you have, are you taking more risk than you need to be? So if you're on track, say, to achieve your goals, in fact, you're going to exceed them, you may not, not to, you may not need to have as much stock market exposure as you have. I mean, there's no doubt that market volatility is not fun. We, none of us enjoy it. It causes us to lose sleep and you may be taking more than you need to take. And that might be a good uh, conversation to have with your advisor in addition to all the, the planning conversations. Is, How would somebody am I, know am if, I in the right uh, strategy? Okay. Yeah. I was going to say just how, how would somebody, if they're thinking that, you know, some of the listeners are saying, well, I thought I should just be as aggressive as possible, but is there, and I don't know if people have realized that maybe there's a chance that they're over-invested. Maybe they're more in stocks than they ought to be? How would somebody verify that answer? Well, the question is, why are you taking, uh, taking risk? You know, most of us, uh, our, our goal is, is a big pile of money way out in the future and through a combination of saving and investments, uh, we're gonna get there. But if we have a pile of money that's pretty close to what we need, then, then you have to ask, why are we taking risk? Yeah. So you, you may not need to have the equity exposure that you have. The other thing to think about is, hey, if I'm losing sleep at night, maybe it would be better for me to reduce the amount of risk I take and save more. Maybe that's better for my personality. I mean, the, the most important thing is, is to get there, right? It's to get to the goal. But there's a lot of different ways to get to the goal. Not everybody can totally ignore a 10 or 15% drop in the market. And yeah. That's yeah. okay. Yeah. We're, we all have, you know, some people are, are NASCAR drivers and you know, some people are accountants and there's a reason. <laughs> Good juxtaposition. Yeah, you're right. Uh, that, yeah, actually that's, it's another sort of helpful reminder too, because I think, um, 
you know, maybe for investors that see a lot of commentary from financial advisors, you know, one, one way to misunderstand what we're saying is to, you know, for people to think, oh, my advisor keeps just telling me to ignore it. Um, but that's not the case. And, and to your point, some people simply just can't ignore a 10 or 15% uh, drawdown. And if that's your personality or your life stage or whatnot, then there, there are more ways than just investing to maybe reach your goal, which is, um, you know, understand where, where you're living or where the home you're living or saving more um, lifestyle. There's just, there's a lot of other options and inputs that can go into Let that. Let me equation. talk a little bit uh, also about a phenomenon that I've noticed uh, with, or with our clients. And that is the longer the market goes up, the more the appetite for risk increases among people. Do they feel like their neighbors are doing really well? They start feeling confident about the rest of their financial lives. And so they, they don't want to hold things in their portfolio like bonds, uh, which are, have less volatility, less potential for return and for risk. And by the same token, when bad things happen, people don't want to hold any uh, investments that have potential for growth. And probably at the, at the extremes of those two situations, neither is the right place to be. So, you know, kind of assessing where your personal risk preference is relative to what's going on in the world and how long it's been going on is also important. And it's a good conversation to have with, with an advisor. Yeah. Am, I, am I at the, 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 the tail end of this, uh, this phenomenon where the longer the bull market runs, the more my appetite for risk increases? And as soon as I have a shock like the coronavirus, well, my, and all of a sudden my appetite has gone to zero. And that kind of emotional whipsaw will cause you A, to be unhappy, and B, maybe to make uh, mistakes, which would, could cost you. So kind of being aware of where you are, maybe having someone to talk to in that type of situation um, would be wise. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, those are such, those, are, those can be risk tolerance conversations that are difficult to have because when you're feeling warm and fuzzy and you're thinking about the downside, it's hard to quite uh, put yourself in that moment. And then all of a sudden it, the downside happens like right now and you realize, wow, my, my risk tolerance, my risk appetite may be different than I initially thought. So having a professional or a partner like a financial planner to guide you through that, uh, even from the get-go, would probably be a, a good use of time. I agree. Cer certainly not listening to the news. That's about the worst place to go right now because you have to remember how the news media works. That's why I like the, uh, the title of fear porn. Uh, nobody watches uh, this. So here's the story. Uh, stock market delivers really good long-term returns. As long as your goals are long-term, ignore short-term uh, volatility. Boring. Well, who, who's going to watch that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and guess what? And guess what? Tomorrow it's the same story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It doesn't change right. at all over so the next right. 30 years. So yeah. so what do I have to do to get you to watch? I have to report, I have to sensationalize everything. Just to put it in perspective, 2002 it was the West Nile virus, 2004 it was the SARS virus, 2005 bird flu. 2009, swine flu, 2014, Ebola, 2016, Zika. So it uh, just goes to show that there's that the, the media is constantly looking for ways to get you to pay attention, but they may have nothing to do with 
the way your strategy really should work, especially in your investment portfolio. That's great. Well, we, we've heard it from Christopher Van Slyke. We really appreciate you, Christopher, coming on, dropping some wisdom and giving us some long-term perspectives. So hope to have you back soon. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me on, John. Thanks for tuning in to The John Chapman Show. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. We encourage your questions, comments, and feedback. For additional information, check out thejohnchapmanshow.com or look for John on LinkedIn and Twitter. See you next week.